You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 61 for Monday the 1st of May 2017. My guest today is Mark Edwards, who writes psychological thrillers in which scary things happen to ordinary people. Mark is inspired by writers such as Stephen King, Ruth Rendell and Edward Barclay. His first solo novel, The Magpies, reached the number one spot on Amazon UK and Follow You Home has now sold over 500,000 copies. Mark started writing in his 20s while working in a number of dead-end jobs. His latest book, The Lucky Ones, is released next month on June the 15th. When I chatted to Mark, I started by asking him when he first realised that he wanted to write. I mean, I tried to write a novel when I was about 16, which was pretty terrible. Luckily, it's long lost now, so I never have to look at it and suffer the the sheer embarrassment. Um, But really, it was when I was in my early 20s, um, after I left university. Um, And I'd always been a big reader, and um, I had an idea for a story, and I actually started writing it longhand in a a notebook. And I kept going, and I wrote a whole novel. um, And got to the end and decided that it wasn't very good, shelved it. Again, that one's long lost. And, uh, and then I just started another one. And, and after I finished that one, that was when I first started to um, look for agents and publishers. So I think I was about 23, 24 at this point. I um, bought myself a copy of the Writers and Artists Handbook, as you had to do in those days. Um, and just started printing out and sending off chapters and synopses to agents and, and straight to publishers as well. Um, and I, I got interest almost straight away from, from some agents and that kind of, that sort of kept me going. I got, because I got some positive feedback almost immediately, although it didn't actually come to anything at that time. I was I was hooked, and then I spent the next, God knows how many years, kind of um, labouring away, trying to trying to get an agent and get a deal. And so, so, were you always writing crime at that stage, Mark? Were you straight into sort of crime um, for psychological stuff? Well, no, not really. I mean, I think this is part of my problem is that I didn't really know what kind of books that I wanted to write. So I was writing all kinds of different stuff. I think I probably had aspirations to be a literary author <laughs> at that point. Without re- <laughs> um, my first agent said to me that everybody always thinks they're more literary than they actually are. Um, and um, I think the first thing I wrote was kind of a like a black comedy. And then I wrote um, something that was a bit like um, the secret history, that kind of genre. So I suppose a literary thriller. But um, everything that I was writing, people ended up getting murdered in. And I think that I realised at that point, also because I loved write, um, reading crime and, and horror as well, 
that that was the way that I should that I should go. But I think if I could, if I look back to my twenties when this was all going on, I think my big mistake was that I didn't have a very clear vision of what kind of writer I wanted to be, and it and it or what kind of books that I should be writing. And it took me a long time to kind of find my my niche. And I, so I think that as a, as a writer, it's kind of important to know what you want. It's not just about finding your voice on the page. It's about knowing what kind of stories you want to tell and where, where you kind of fit in. Um, so, I mean, I have, a much, I have a very clear idea of that now, but at the time I, I didn't. I mean, I actually wrote the first version of The Magpies back in this back in this period in, I think it was in 2000. So I was like 29, 30 by then. Um, and I didn't think of the magpies at that time as a psychological thriller. I thought I was writing a horror novel, a sort of non-supernatural horror novel. It was only when I went back to it later that I thought, actually, this is, this is a psychological thriller. Um, and, and then I kind of tweaked it to make it more thrillerish and less less horror. So, so yeah, it kind of took me a long time to find my niche, but um, I got there in the end. <laughs> did Did you ever do the writer thing? Did you ever go to workshops and, and immerse yourself in learning how to write? No, I didn't. I'm purely self taught, and um, it's all through reading loads and loads and loads. I mean, I, I'm. I read one or two books a week and probably when I was younger, before I had kids, I'd read even more. Um, and I, to me, that's the best way to learn. Um, I mean, I, I'm always buying guidebooks that tell you how to write and then I'll read the first half a chapter and then I'll just be itching to get on with actually writing something. I'm very bad at following, following advice. The only time that's been different was when I, um, I wrote a screenplay for one of my books recently and I had no idea what I was doing. I've never written a screenplay before. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously I've watched thousands of films, but um, I, I, I did find it quite useful to read some books then and kind of learn about structuring a screenplay because I'd, I've never kind of done that with my books. I've, I think by osmosis, I've learned how to structure a book and, but I never sit down and think, right, this is act one. Here's a turning point. This is act two. Here's another turning point and all that kind of stuff. I just, I just have the kind of template for the story in my head from having read and consumed so many books over the years and also from having written so much. So, so yeah, sorry, I'm very long winded answer. To your question. <laughs> no, I didn't. I've never been a member of a writer's group. I've never had to read out my work in front of a group of people for it to be critiqued and honestly I couldn't think of anything worse than doing that. When I was um, d doing my background research on you uh, I'm fairly <laughs> familiar with your story anyway because I, I read and love your books but uh, 1999 um, I spotted that Louise Voss had seen you on a TV documentary so in your yeah. in your chronology what were you kind of writing then to get you on a TV documentary? Um, well so I had written a book which was called The Liberators, which was the one that was a bit kind of secret history-ish about a group of um, friends who make a pact to become famous and and then there's various murders and things involved. Um, 
It was quite, I thought it was quite a good book, actually. But again, it's never going to see the light of day. It's massively dated now. Um, so I had managed to get an agent um, after writing that book and sending it to loads of people. Um, and she had then tried to sell that book to publishers but hadn't been successful and had done the same with another another novel. Um, and the BBC were making a documentary about aspiring writers um, for the close-up strand, which doesn't exist anymore, but, he, but each week they, they'd have a different kind of... It was an arts, an arts programme. Um, they had Jake Arnott as the published author or the one who just got a deal. Then they wanted somebody who had an agent but no publisher who was so they could kind of show what you go through to try and get a deal. And then they had somebody who had no agent who was trying to get an agent. Um, so luck, the, the, they came down to see me. I lived in Hastings at the time and, um, and kind of obviously thought that I would, I would look good on TV. <laughs> well, actually I think they thought I'd look a bit sad because I was so desperate at this, at this point that I'd be kind of there with my rejection letters looking a bit pathetic and probably get people crying. I, I was like a kind of early template for an X Factor wannabe. <laughs> oh, it's all I've ever wanted to do. It's my dream. I'm going to give it 110%, that kind of thing. Um, I was, I was, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of regretted doing it actually because it didn't lead to anything apart from meeting Louise. Um, and I think it just made me look a bit like a bit of a sad, <laughs> sad wannabe. Um, yeah, it was, I thought, I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be on this TV thing and it's bound to lead to a book deal. Um, very naive, but, um, it didn't. And actually, it took me quite a long time to shed the stigma of having been on that program. And, I, and people, agents used to say to me, like, don't tell anybody about it when you, when, you approach, when you approach other agents or publishers. Because my agent at that time sort of dumped me shortly after that, that program, after she failed to sell, like, my first three or four books, one of which was The Magpies. Um, so, so, yeah, but, but Louise... I got, I got some quite funny um, letters from people, um, sort of written in green ink. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but among among that, I got an email from somebody called Louise Voss, who was in exactly the same situation as me. She had an agent, hadn't yet found a publisher, kind of kept getting close, but but um, not crossing that final line. And um, we struck up a, a correspondence. We didn't meet actually for the first couple of years. We just used to email each other and and um, moan about publishers and <laughs> send each other send each other our work to kind of to look at and um, and yeah. And then a few a couple of years after that, she got a deal, um, and I still didn't. And then we met up and decided to write a book together. So that was in. 2001, 2002, I think. I'm very interested in people's journeys on this podcast mm. and, um, you know, how people, and I, I'm really interested in your story because it shows just remarkable persistence over a long period of time. And uh, so, 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
but, yeah. but, but generally, you know, these seem to be talking to so many authors that the people who seem to make it are the ones who've got that real true grit. And, and most people, you know, have got a day job and they have to make a living and keep a roof yeah. over their head in the meantime. So what, what were you then doing at that time to pay the bills? Because, you know, it does take remarkable time management to, to do both those things while you're trying to get I'm, going. I'm, I know. Well, I mean, there's there's two or three different phases. So the first phase, when I was in my 20s, I was, I did a couple of really horrible jobs. I worked at the child support agency, which was the only kind of big employer in Hastings where I lived. Um, and then I used to just write at weekends. Um, and then I went to work for a, a rail company in the complaints department. So I spent my day being shouted at by commuters. <laughs> what a job that is. <laughs> oh, God, it's the worst, the worst job in the world. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, answering letters wasn't so bad, but you'd have to do one week answering letters and then a week on the phones. And people were so angry, so angry all the time. And um, you felt like a kind of human punching bag. So I did that, and then I kind of think I took out my frustrations in my in my um, in my writing because um, I didn't. I, partly geographically, I lived in a place where there weren't many good jobs um, or any good jobs, but also I think that I I thought I don't want a job that's kind of going to take up a lot of mental energy. The kind of job that you take that you that you take home. I, I I was doing the kind of job that you you kind of finish at five pm and go home. And you don't think about it until you go back to the office. So that all of my time outside of work, I could concentrate on being a writer. Now that changed in um, so the dot com boom kind of happened at the end of the nineties, early noughties, and I got involved in that i went to work for an internet startup and suddenly i had a job a day job that i really enjoyed and that actually kind of took away from my passion for for writing um because i felt that i was because now that i was more fulfilled in my in my day job um i found myself writing less um so there was a period kind of in the um God, I guess from like 2004, 2005, up to like 2011, when I hardly wrote anything at all. And this was after, I mean, I'd already been trying at this point for like 11 or 12 years to get a deal and having had agents and, and one of the books with Louise had been optioned by the BBC, but again, we hadn't managed to find a, a publisher for it. After all those kind of years of getting close and never quite getting a deal, I was I was punched drunk I was, and I was fed up with all the rejection and I just thought it's not worth it anymore. I've 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 been through, I've had so many rejection letters mm. and um, and um, got close so many times. I've given it a good shot. Maybe it's time to give up and just concentrate on my career and and some doing something where I'm actually appreciated. Because I was actually doing pretty well in my in my career, I worked for a for a small publisher. Um, we weren't publishing novels or fiction; we were publishing like information. But um, and I was I was doing digital marketing, and um, and I was really good at it. So I was I was doing well, and I was I was satisfied in my in my day job. So I didn't, although I was still reading lots, and I guess I still had this 
at the back of my mind this this kind of dream of being a writer I didn't really do anything to pursue it also I started having children and that obviously takes up huge amounts of time and and energy so so yeah I had a sort of fallow period where I was barely barely doing anything um and I think that I think that it's hard. I know I know other writers who have really stressful day jobs, like they're lawyers or um, or teachers or something like that. And it's I, I, I really admire them for being able to do that, to do a kind of high pressure job um, that takes a lot out of you and be able to write on top. I mean, I, I found it I found it hard to find the space to do it. I'm, I'm thinking. Um, when you were on that TV documentary, you know, Prince hadn't even written his hit single at that stage. It, was, it, it, it feels like years ago, but in terms of publishing, um, it, it is, you know, because... You know, I for, know, yeah, it's amazing how much how much has changed. So so self-publishing, I'm just trying to think, 1999, um, you know, it would have been, it wouldn't even be the thing then, would it, in 1999? No, well, there was vanity publishing. Yes. I mean, you could you could pay somebody to print a book for you and... Um, nobody would read it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it was vanity publishing. So there was no such thing as self-publishing. Um, I think that John Grisham self-published in Vertical as his first book, printed a thousand copies, um, and thought that he could like sell them to his friends. Um, and then he quickly got a deal for his second book and. And the rest was history, but but there are very there were very very few examples of anybody in the world, as far as I know, um, self publishing anything and um, and and being successful with it. You you had to go the one the, that one route. Um, I mean, at, at the time, I think publishers were even kind of shutting down their slush piles, so you had to get an agent and go through an agent. Um. So. So yeah, I mean, people in self, people love to use that word gatekeepers, don't they? But that's how it felt that there were these kind of these people working in publishing or in agencies who who um, controlled your your um, your fate. <laughs> I think. I mean, the other thing that's worth pointing out, and you alluded to it earlier. You you said that your first books were written on a on a pen and paper in two thousand and two. Yeah. I, I got my first home computer in two thousand and two. So so again, even even the process of writing was different in those days. Yeah. Oh my god, I had this thing called a sharp font writer, which was a glorified typewriter with you could put a floppy disk into the side of it. Oh, and posh. I know. Well, I I bought it. I bought it through a catalogue and paid it off at like five pounds a week. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. Oh God, this is like ancient history. Your younger viewers will be like, "What the hell is it?" Catalogue? What's a catalogue? It's how we used to buy everything, isn't it? Yeah, well, I probably know what the Argos catalogue is, but um, you had to print off like one page at a time. You'd feed in one sheet of paper, and then it would whir for ten minutes oh. and print off. I mean, it literally took two days to print a novel sitting there like on this thing, feeding in one sheet of paper after another. And you could only see like three lines of text at a time. How I, how, oh God, I, it's, it's, um, 
now I'm sitting here with like a big iMac, which I can kind of have two documents open side by side and and you kind of forget what a luxury that is now. But it's but yeah, it's changed. It has changed so much. And even in I mean, the whole I'm I'm skipping ahead, but I didn't self publish until two thousand and eleven. And so everything that's happened has only happened in like to me, really, since I've got um any sort of first sign of success it's all happened in five six years which which um and, and lots has changed in that time as well so it's um yeah it's kind of crazy how much has changed and it's important to put this in context because when you started to write with louise that mm. process would have been you know quite different to how it might have been now now you could have collaborated on a shared document in google drive or something like that but yeah, it wasn't yeah. around then was it no, we. I mean, we we basically just emailed each other documents back and forth. Luckily, email had been invented by. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have you to know, get carrier pigeons. Yeah. I mean, Stephen King and Peter Straw wrote the Talisman. Um, is it the Talisman? They wrote one of their books together in the eighties, with Stephen King in America and and Peter Straw in. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. In in. Um, ireland or england and they were literally having to post each other the chats across the atlantic um but yeah we had emails so that was that was okay and um and in fact we kept that um that working process um even when google docs were invented we would we still kind of emailed each other i mean our last novel which we wrote a couple of years ago we were still emailing each other word documents backwards and forwards but we used dropbox to share everything so that i guess that was the difference that was pretty cool yeah and then but what, what was it like writing with somebody else you know I, I i can't imagine writing with somebody else i'd be arguing with them all the time about the plot line and things so yeah. how does it work well you obviously have to find the right person to do it with and we were lucky that we did find somebody that we that we were kind of matched well with um and we and we never argued. We we would kind of discuss stuff, obviously, and disagree, but we never had a falling out over anything that we wrote. It was it was actually a, a very smooth process. So we would, I mean, the process is that we would kind of meet up, work out the, a very vague plot, and 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 hopefully who done it because it's very hard to write a crime novel without knowing. <laughs> <laughs> done it at the end um i mean i have tried and it causes all sorts of complications um and then we would just we would we'd have a chapter plan which we would sort of fill in as we went along um and then i would say to louise right well you write chapter three and i'll write chapter two and then we'd send the chapters back and forth make comments on them and and then as soon as the chapter was ready we'd put it into a master document and then the novel just kind of grew like that. But, I mean, it was, it's a slightly chaotic process in that we would be writing all out of order. So I might be writing Chapter 7 and she's on Chapter 13. Um, and there'd be points where one of us would be waiting for the other one to catch up. Um, and we'd kind of take – we always have multiple narrators, so we we take different characters um, – each so that the, the voice is consistent of those characters and um or there's certain kinds of scene that i would write 
I tended to write the violence and she wrote the sex. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got quite good at the sex now, I noticed in yours. Well <laughs> they're quite sex well, they're quite sexy your books, aren't they? Some some yeah, some people beg some people would, would disagree <laughs> with that. But I've had very mixed reviews of my sex scenes. I'm kind of just like in real life. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> ah yes, yes. I um I've actually I think I've I've got less and less sex in my books as time's gone on, but I've actually got to write a sex scene um in the next few days. I've got one coming up. And I haven't written one for a while. I'm feeling I'm, I've got slight performance anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Yes, you know but, I, uh, I got a, a, a an erotic writer on this podcast before I did my first sex scene to talk him through, you know, the okay. words to use and everything because it's a real <laughs> art. It's hard, well, isn't it? What I like about your books is you kind of have real life, you know, couples who bitch and have sex and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I like that yeah. in your books. I think it's good. I think you write um, your sex scene sort of real and, and you know, natural rather than romantically or anything like that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I feel embarrassed talking about it. It is. It's quite weird because it's because I mean, a lot of people don't write them because they say, "Oh my god, my mum's going to read this," and my mum does read my books, and there have been times when I've kind of cringe thinking about her, her reading some of the stuff, but she she doesn't mind at all. I mean, all my all of my family read my books. My mother-in-law reads them, um, and and um, it's actually worse for my wife because people at the school gates kind of nudge her and go, oh, "I was reading reading the Magpies last night, and I couldn't help but picture you and Mark." And she's she's like, "Oh my god, it's so cringesome. Do you have do you have to do it?" But um, but yeah. Uh, Getting back to the co-writing. Yeah, hang on, before we finish that, though, I've got to pick you up on because she loves me, right? Because oh, when when they're in that ice cold pool, yeah, yeah, <laughs> surely you'd have problems in an ice cold pool, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. Well, the thing is, I wrote that scene and I thought this is crazy, but I I need to delete this scene because people are going to think it's just too bonkers. But actually, I have a theory that. Um, if you write a scene that is that seems a bit out there or a bit crazy, keep it in because people remember those scenes and they talk about them and they they stick in they stick in people's minds. There's nothing worse than being bland or safe. So um, I decided to keep that because I want I, I wanted to write a sex scene that was really different and that people would remember. Um, it's a bit like the spiders in the Magpies. Um, it's I don't know if you've read the Magpies. I have actually. Yes, it was the last one of yours I just read. Actually, yeah. Yeah. So that so that scene with the spiders. Um, when I wrote that again, I thought, oh, that that's a bit that's a bit mad. That um, maybe I should take that scene out. But it's actually the one scene, apart from the lake scene that you've just mentioned, in all of my books that um, people talk to me about again and again. It's the one that sticks in their minds. So if you write, so so this is my kind of tip <laughs> for, for other writers is don't play it safe. Write something that you might think is a bit crazy or a bit out there. People remember it and it will make your book stick in their, in their heads. As long as you, as long as they suspend their disbelief when they're right, when they're reading it, it's, it's fine. So, um, so yeah, and I, so I try to put something like that in every book. 
a scene that, well, hopefully more than one, but at least one or two scenes that that um, people really remember and and um, maybe talk to their friends about. Yes, and, and it works because here we are talking about it now on, on the interview. Yeah, and, and, you yeah. know, something I recall very easily um, about that book. That, that, sorry, that, I, we digressed a little bit there, but uh, uh. Uh, sorry about that. Um, we were we were talking about um, you know co-writing um, with Louise, and um, yeah. uh, that, I, that's right because you said Louise wrote the sex bits and you did the violence. That's how we got onto that. So um, yeah, <laughs> so, so it was always an easy process. What about the um, the, the payments? Because um, it's quite hard to sort of share payments as as authors. Uh, how, how did you sort that out in those days? Yeah, well, when we were on KDP, I mean, we basically went into my bank account, and then I and then I um, sent her half. So we both had we both had access to um, our KDP account, um, so we could see the um, the royalty statements and and the sales numbers and so on. Um, and yeah, we we just. Um, we just shared it. So once we once we got to the point where we had a publisher, the publisher would just pay me fifty percent and her fifty percent, so it was, it was much easier. But yeah, I mean, obviously she had to trust me that I wasn't going to run off with the money to Antigua or something. But but um, we weren't talking millions of pounds. It wasn't like I was ever tempted to. <laughs> <laughs> runner, <laughs> I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been able to live on a on a tropical island for very long without having to come home to face the music. So you um, you self published those books, I think, with Louise in the early days. Could you talk yeah. me through that process? Yeah. So what happened was that um, so we'd written these two books, Killing Cupid and Catch Your Death, um, and then they'd and we'd gone out to agents and publishers with them and and. Um, hadn't well we hadn't got anywhere with it and um so they'd sat gathering dust 2010 was when i think amazon launched the, the kindle in the uk and along with it they launched kdp over here and i started reading articles about authors who'd had success um self-publishing and i and i thought that's really interesting. Maybe we should do that with these books that we've already written. So I spoke to Louise about it. She was very reluctant at first, um, thought that we would sell, I don't know, a few copies and it would all be a bit embarrassing and not worth all the effort. Um, but I persuaded her. So we then set about rewriting the books because they needed to be updated because we'd written them I mean, as well as in publishing, things in society had changed a lot. I mean, our books were full of people who had no mobile phones. They were all smoking in pubs. Mm. They, yeah, yeah. They, they were, there was no Facebook. So they needed massively updating. Um, so we did that. And then we self-published Killing Cupid in February 2011. And um, I became hooked on trying to sell that book because the wonderful thing about KDP, the wonderful, terrible thing, as every self-published author will know, is how addictive it is checking your sales numbers, sitting there hitting refresh to see whether you've sold a book. 
and I became like one of those lab rats who pushes the pedal trying to see if a tree comes down or whether a tree doesn't appear. And um, my my obsession, my addiction to KDP kind of drove me to do everything that I could to try and try and promote that book and and sell it. And um, and I was I was doing my day job at the time. My my girlfriend, my now wife, was pregnant with our second child. But I was kind of pouring all of my spare time into um, into well, mainly blogging, actually. Um, I didn't do much um, Facebook or Twitter. Um, I, was, I was using forums like the Kindle boards, and I was, and I was networking with other indie authors um, and just doing, doing loads of blogging and, and anything that I could think of to, um, to try and get people to notice this book. And when you look, and, when I look at the magpies now in the UK, I mean, this is just incredible. You've got 4,000, over 4,000 reviews on the magpies now. Yeah. Think, thinking about it probably felt a lot harder than that then, didn't it? To, you know, to just get those early reviews. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this was with Killing Cupid. Magpies was a bit later, but um, it was really hard, really hard to get, to get reviews. I mean, you would, um, I think that what happens is that you generally get about 1% of people who buy the book review it. That, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of consistent number across my books. It's, the percentage is higher when you, in, the, in the kind of first weeks, and then it, and it kind of flattens out over time and settles down at about 1%. Um, and vol- in 2011, volumes of books being sold on, on the Kindle were much lower than they were or than they are now. Um, so trying to get reviews from, from readers, we didn't, I mean, there wasn't anything that you could do to try. I didn't know at the time that there was anything you could do to try and get reviews directly from readers. So we were, we were um, approaching bloggers as much as we could to try and get to get them to review the books. But yeah, I mean, every time there was a new review, it felt like, um, like an event. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know that feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but then once you, once you kind of get the sales coming in, then they just happen on their own. That's when you first discover the pain of the one star review or the, the, um, because I mean, I've had, I reckon I've had well over 10,000 reviews on my books now, 10, 15,000. I haven't actually gone through to count them up. And I think I've read most of them. Um, sometimes I just glance at them to kind of glance at the, the headline. And it doesn't, it doesn't hurt anymore when I get a bad review. If it's a new, if it's a new book that's just come out and, um, and you kind you kind of feel a bit more sensitive when it's a when it's a brand new book and you're waiting for those first reviews to come in. Um, if I if you get a really bad review on a new one, then it, it kind of stings a little bit. But the others, I it, I just don't even feel it anymore. I'm I'm completely numb to the to the uh, the, the the pain of of getting a bad review. So. Um, 
I don't know why I started talking about bad reviews. It's obviously a, a slight obsession of mine. Yeah. What I'm saying. <laughs> well, I, I hadn't looked at your bad reviews, but I am now. You're talking about them, but, <laughs> but I mean, this is good advice, isn't it, for anybody um, who um, you know, new authors who get bad reviews. Look at successful authors like you know you you undoubtedly are now, and they've all got one star reviews. And you know, whatever, really, isn't it? You know, if you you've, you've got so many. Everybody has one star reviews. Go and look at your favourite book and read some of the reviews of it. The thing is, you nearly, pretty much everybody gets more four and five star reviews than they do one star reviews, unless you are truly terrible. But there's very few um, authors who who have less than like a three and a half average. Most, nearly every book on Amazon has got an average somewhere between four and four and a half. Um, so it doesn't actually mean that much in the end, but, um, yeah, try, try not to, um, let one star reviews get to you and take comments with a pinch of salt as well, because going back to the sex thing, people who don't like sex scenes will be very vocal about it. And you'll get, you might get lots of reviews saying, well, there was loads of, loads of filth in this book and it was disgusting and, blah, blah, blah. Um, but actually, I think the silent majority probably like, like it, but, but the, the, the noisy minority are going to be the ones who are writing reviews and criticising you for doing certain things. So um, what happens is that you might see the same kind of comments coming up again and again in your reviews. And you have to kind of decide, is that just a kind of noisy minority of people who don't like that? Or is it actually a problem, something that I'm doing, that I'm doing wrong that most people don't like? Um, and so you have to kind of make a judgment call about that. Um, and it's kind of, it can be quite hard to, to resist the urge to, for example, not write any sex scenes or not have a scene where, the other thing that people hate is is um, animals being hurt, even in crime novels where children are being abducted and and women are being butchered and and all sorts of horrible things going on. If you if you hint at harm to a dog, you'll get loads of emails and bad reviews because people hate it. And um, I'm not saying that you should put loads of animal crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I love animals, and I've got a cat, two cats, and a dog. And and uh, but sometimes it's just necessary to do things like that, and you can't worry too much about what people are going to, what people are going to write in the reviews. You can't write a book with these phantom reviewers looking over your shoulder. That's what that's what that's that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, so again, a kind of for someone who's kind of been through it and has had thousands of reviews and written lots of books and and um, my advice to new writers, um, without trying to sound patronising, is just try not to worry too much about about your reviews. Um, take it all with a pinch of salt and and carry on writing what you what you want to write because. Um, because unless you are a really bad writer, which I hope you're not, then um, you're uh, you're you're gonna you're gonna know what's right for your for your book or your story. One of the things I'm I'm really interested in, particularly with authors who've had as much success as as you have, is where was the point of ignition 
for you? When, when did you stop pushing against closed doors and then you suddenly thought, oh, wow, this, this is going now? Um, it was, well, it was in that, in the first few months of when we published Killing Cupid. So, um, and unfortunately, I don't have a magic a magic bullet or a big secret that I can that I can reveal as to how we managed to get to get that door open. Um, it was lots and lots of little things, including constantly tweaking the product description, um, because in those days you could you could actually see the percentage of people who were visiting your page, your book's page, and then going on to buy it, which was great for somebody who was into marketing like I was. Um, you could see your conversion rate. And so I would be tweaking the descriptions, try and get the conversion rate up. And one day I, I, repl- I completely rewrote the description and literally doubled sales immediately. Like within an hour, sales had doubled. And, um, and that's when it took off. But that was that was often months of lots of things like accruing reviews, making lots of contacts, doing lots of blog posts, um, and things that you can't see going on in the in the Amazon algorithms. Things that are, are kind of like sheer luck. For example, you know, you have the customers who bought this also bought strip across the page. Um, our book appeared on very prominently on the on the page with two books that both went into the top ten on Kindle at the same time. So suddenly our book was visible to all of those people as well. And then that, in conjunction with changing the product description, meant that sales suddenly took off. And then one day we got to number one on the Movers and Shakers chart, which I was incredibly excited about. Um, and and the book just kept climbing and climbing until eventually going to the top 100. Now, that was about three months after we published it. And at that point, what we did, which in retrospect was, was a clever move, but we didn't really know what we were doing at the time, <laughs> was that we, we then published the second book, Catch Your Death, just at the time when Killing Cupid was getting some um, some traction. and. Um, Catch Your Death went up onto Amazon, immediately attracted four or five like really good five-star reviews from existing readers. And one day, about two weeks after Catch Your Death had come out, I was doing what I always did and pretending to look after my children while checking my KDP stats. <laughs> Standing in the park with my daughter, pushing the swing with one hand and checking my refreshing KDP with the other on my, my phone. I mean, that's how desperately addicted I was. Um, and I suddenly I saw, oh, we've just sold three more, four more, five more. And the sales were just coming in like really, really fast, like in, in a way that I'd never seen before. And so every hour I was going back to Amazon to check the ranking. It was, and it was, and it was literally shooting up the charts. And um, this was on a Saturday. I think we'd started the day down at number three or 400. And by the end of the day, we were up at number 11. And it was just, it was amazing. It was such an exciting day. It suddenly felt like we'd finally kind of 
broken through and killing cupid was was following it overtaking killing cupid and that one was was following it up the charts so suddenly we had like two books in the top 30 and then three days later catch your death got to number one um on the overall Kindle chart in the UK and Killing Cupid went up to number two. So we had, we were number one and two on Kindle and it was just, it was fantastic. It was so exciting after it felt like after 15 years or whatever it was of, of trying to get anybody to read my books, take any notice of, of, of my work that we'd kind of, we, Louise and I had, had, broken through and and really achieved something because we were, I mean, Stephen Leather was doing it, but he was really an established author. So we were the first like truly indie British authors to get to number one in the UK. And, um, and then loads of stuff all happened at the same time because um, I mean, self-publishing was suddenly a big story in the media. Um, John Locke, who I don't think anybody who who seems to have disappeared now, but he he became the first in the author to sell a million books um, in the US. Suddenly that was a big news story. And we were the British representatives of that. And we were invited on to BBC Breakfast and Sky News. And um, we were in all pretty much every newspaper we had film crews following us around, um, Reuters coming and doing a piece on us. It was it was it was amazing, absolutely um, fantastic after so long. And then we had agents approaching us, agents who had previously turned down these books, which was quite a nice feeling. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about that because you know um, when I was talking to Angie Marsons about this, you know Angie had spent lots of time in the wilderness writing these books. I know, and, yeah. And, and what you know, I want to know what what's it like when when because this is most authors' experience. People sticking their nose up at their book, saying they're not good enough, they're not right for some reason, and then all of a sudden something tips. There's a tipping point, and then all of a sudden everybody wants that work that everybody was rejecting. So so, so what what is it? Is it just that? there's a momentum that that point of ignition that suddenly you know turns you from somebody that didn't people didn't want to somebody people did want yeah well i think in our case it was purely the the, the case that we'd shown that there was an audience for these books that people um i mean publishers publishers and agents are absolutely inundated with with um submissions uh, my agent gets hundreds hundreds of submissions every month. I mean, I don't know exactly how many, but, and, and, and so you, you can kind of understand why it's so hard to kind of get to, to stand out among the noise. Um, so what we did and what self-publishing has done for so many people is that it's given authors an opportunity. Um, if, well, we we because we had always we had always wanted, well, I had always wanted a traditional deal. Louise had already had one and had been burned already because it hadn't gone particularly well. Um, but it was something that I'd wanted for so long that um, when agents and publishers kind of started to show interest in us, 
although we were doing really well self-publishing, I couldn't resist the the uh, the, the lure of having a of having a publisher and. Um, even though we hadn't kind of set out to self-publish as a way of, of finding a publisher, um, when they started to show interest, it was it was impossible to to uh, for me anyway to say no, um, and and to kind of so what we'd done was we'd shown that there was an audience for our work, and um, and even then it wasn't like every publisher in the country was was beating down our door i mean it was just that harper collins who signed us um had a had a gap because another thing that a lot of writers don't realize is that publishers will only want like one or two authors of a certain type or in a certain in a certain subgenre or who are writing particular kinds of books so if you you might write the greatest um, police procedure in the world and send it to Penguin but if Penguin have already got enough people writing that kind of book and they don't need anyone else then they're, they're not going to take on anybody else um, so HarperCollins had a kind of gap in their in their, um, in their portfolio and, and they wanted to sign us but yeah they were interested because we were number one and two on Kindle and uh, that's what made us stand out from all the other submissions that, that they were getting. And the remarkable thing about your story is, is you'd think that this was the fairy tale ending now, the Harper well, Collins know, yeah, did. <laughs> but, but like your books, you know, they've got a lovely little twist in the story. And this story has a twist, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's... So what happened then was that the, the deal with Harper Collins didn't work out very well. It was it was just hugely disappointing for everybody. I think for them as well. Um, um, they 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 republished Catch Your Death and Killing Cupid um, in the, in the year after they'd been hit um, as Kindle books, and I think that what they assumed was going to happen was that the people who'd already bought them on Kindle were then going to go out and buy them again in paperback in shops. And um, which obviously wasn't going to work. And um, I mean, I had my first meeting with them and they said, well, there isn't actually a marketing budget. And I think from that point, I knew, oh, God, something's going to go horribly wrong here. And um, and yeah, it was I mean, our editor was lovely. And the whole kind of process of of being of having an editor and a publisher and and like we had a big launch party for catch your death and and um and like a, a champagne reception at the HarperCollins offices and and it was again it was all like really exciting like this is this is really gonna take off and we we've made it and then there we were sitting like a year later um after sales had, had failed to take off um, knowing that the third book, so because we had a four book contract and the third book was coming out in January 2013 and our editor basically rang us and said, well, I'm sorry, but none of the supermarkets are going to take it. Um, and I think Smith's had ordered, W.A. Smith's had ordered a few copies, but, but hardly any. Um so this book isn't going to sell um, 
they kind of knew that before it had even been published because no shops, no retailers were taking it. And she said, and that means that the fourth book isn't going to sell either. And we haven't even finished the fourth book at that point. We were being told, well, no one's going to buy it. And, and it's just a horrible gut wrenching feeling. Um, so I, after all the highs of, of kind of, um, 2011 here I was um just over a year later a year and a half later with a new book coming out um <laughs> so complete lack of interest from the world <laughs> and uh, I mean HarperCollins didn't even put it in their catalogue that goes out to bookshops because I had a copy of the catalogue and we weren't even in it <laughs> did you think it was all over then Yes, yes. I thought it was all over, but it wasn't. Because <laughs> it has another twist, doesn't it? Yes. So, okay. So, this is this is like writing a screenplay when you have the all is lost moment. Absol- in the, yeah, in absolutely. The- yeah, it, it follows the trajectory brilliantly, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, um, early two thousand and thirteen, um, Louise and I had a meeting with our agent. Um, we'd had a meeting with Harper Collins as well, and we knew that they weren't going to want any more books from us. Um, and we had this really kind of gloomy, gloomy meeting with our agent where, I mean, we were talking about writing another book and we, we had the idea for the, the Patrick, Le- the Patrick Lennon books, which was the series that we, that we went on to, to write. Um, and, so we were feeling kind of positive about creatively about that book and what we were going to write about. But career wise, we were in a very bad place. I mean, I had given up my, my day job after getting the deal with Harper Collins because, um, well, I took that gamble that I would, I kind of had just enough money to keep me going for, for a little while. Um, I moved out of London up to Wolverhampton where my wife's from because it's it's really cheap up here mm. <laughs> cheap and bought a bought a, a cheap house but I was now kind of I was now supporting myself doing freelancing work because the, all the money from the books had dried up um had had a mortgage had maxed out my overdraft maxed out my credit I was on my credit card limit um and we had another baby on the way as well never been very good at planning these things <laughs> and uh and i i was i mean i was i can laugh about it now but i was i was having sleepless nights i was having i was going for real i was in a really dark place um worrying about i'm not a natural pessimist i i um i think that i always think there's going to be a solution to things uh, a way through but i was at that point, kind of not knowing what I was going to do. And because I'd moved to Wolverhampton, I'd worked in publishing. There weren't any of the kind of jobs. I, it's not people could say, I'll oh, just go out and get a job, but there weren't any of the kind of jobs that I had the qualifications to do around here where I live. So anyway, I had the magpies in a, and the only reason that I had a copy of the magpies was because a few years before, I had emailed a copy of it to my girlfriend, 
my, my now wife. And I don't think she'd ever actually read it, but I'd emailed it to her. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and luckily she still had it buried deep in her inbox. That was the only copy that existed in the world. Otherwise none of this would have happened. So that was one stroke of luck. I feel slightly sick when I even think about it, like what would have happened if she hadn't, if she hadn't kept that email. Um, and I said to Louise, I'm going to, I'm going to self publish this book because, um, I'd been, I'd been meaning to do it for ages and I've been tinkering with it kind of on and off for years. So I, I basically thought, right, I'm going to do it. And on the train home from that meeting, I started editing it, um, and spent the next few weeks doing what we'd done again with Kin and Cupid, bringing it all up to date. Louise went through it and, and did a kind of light edit on it for me. My, my girlfriend read through it and, and, um, and I was like, right, I'm ready, ready to self publish it. Now I'm friends with Rachel Abbott, who is another really, really successful self published, probably the most successful self published author in the UK. Um, and, she told me that her new book was being published through something called White Glove, which is um, agent-assisted self-publishing. So basically you do it through your agent and Amazon kind of give you a bit of help, like they'll format the book, like the Create Space version and, and help you with all of that. I went, I got the cover design. My sister-in-law did the cover. Um, I befriended a photographer who gave me a, a photo, like the photo that's still on the cover of the Magpies now. Um, she let me have that for free, which was which was great. Um, and I wrote the blurb, and um, and basically, in return for some exclusivity, which Amazon are always big on exclusivity, <laughs> they uh, gave me they they promised to kind of put it in an email. I think they were just going to include it in an email that had lots of other books in it. And I thought, well, that's better than nothing. Let's, let's do that. So, um, now when was this? This was March, 2013. I, um, self published the magpies. And by this point I had a Louise and I had a Facebook page where we had, we had probably a few hundred likes. It wasn't like a huge number. So I promoted it on that Facebook page, did a launch party and I think I sold like 150 copies in the first day, which was enough to get it to number one on, on number one or two on psychological thrillers, but not very high overall in the in the rankings. And um, I had basically I was selling it for one pound ninety nine, so on a seventy percent royalty. So I'd figured out that if I could sell twenty or thirty thousand copies, then I could pay my tax bill that I had hanging over my head. And that would at least keep me out of prison. <laughs> but I don't think I was actually facing prison, but I had this, this horrendous tax bill because I had been quite naive when I'd got my, when I'd first gone self-employed. Um, anyway, that's another, another cautionary tale about, about um, make sure you put aside enough money for tax. Um, and I, 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 I remember the first few days when the magpies was out basically sales started dropping so every day it sold less than the day before and it started dropping down the rankings and i remember waking up on it was good friday um in april 2013 and 
looking at waking up and looking at the ranking and thinking this isn't going to work i'm not going to i'm not going to be able to sell this book it's much harder now than it was in 2011 things have moved on um and i didn't know what i was going to do but what happened next is the kind of miracle um i started checking my sales and saw happening again exactly what had happened two years previously with catch your death that suddenly there were 10 sales come in then 20 then 30 then 40 and i was hitting refresh on kdp watching the sales kind of come in really really fast thinking oh my god oh my god it's happening again i was getting and trying to kind of suppress my excitement just in case it was a, a flash a, a flash in the pan um, but it wasn't. And I think um, what had happened was that Amazon had sent out an email to, to pretty much everyone who'd ever bought one of my books before, like over the, the last couple of years. Um, and enough of them, like a few thousand of them, had gone out and bought the magpies enough to send it up into the top, the top 30. And from there it it's stuck and what often happens is when they send out an email it will shoot up the charts and then it will just drop back out again but it didn't it stuck and it kept climbing and kept climbing and um it actually took a long time it sat at number two in the charts for nearly a month and then there was a book there was like a 20p book or something or a 35p book at number one and i just couldn't couldn't shift it off the top mm. spot it's really frustrating. Um, I actually know the I know the author, and and um, and he's got the same. He's with the same agency as me, so um, I think they found it all very very amusing. But for, eventually, his price suddenly went up, and he dropped off the top spot, and I went up to number one. And yes. it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. It was, great. it was such. A, it was a really great feeling again, and um, to to think that I'd done it again. And um, and I was still under contract to HarperCollins at this point as well, but they kind of didn't they didn't mind me going off and self publishing this this solo book. They probably thought nothing was going to come of it. And um, and and yeah, I mean the magpie it literally saved my saved my bacon. It did. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean there's been points over the 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 the. the subsequent few years when I've looked back and and thought um that was like one of those turning points that you sometimes get in your life where um if that hadn't happened like what I, I don't know what I mean I probably I would have survived it wasn't like I was going to end up destitute but it would have been it would have been much much tougher and I, I, I definitely wouldn't be a a full-time writer now so um, the next the next thing that happened was that um, Thomas and Mercer, which is part of Amazon Publishing, um, approached me. They were just setting up an office in the UK. I've always, I've always had a knack of being one of the first to do things, and or to be in the right place at the right time um, with, with, with this stuff. And so I was, the, I think, the first or second author that they signed over here, 
and they bought the rights to the magpies and and because she loves me um which i hadn't started at that point and um and yeah it's it's it i wouldn't say it's been absolutely plain sailing since then but it's been much better um in two years two years after the magpies came out um i mean i always thought nothing's the magpies have sold over five hundred thousand copies now and i always thought nothing's ever going to beat that book but but the one that came out in 2015 follow you home is actually is actually bigger than the magpies and um did really really well in america and the the, the different if you can if you can hit the top 10 in the US, it's phenomenal because the the number of sales you get over there compared to the UK. I mean, I sold like a hundred and fifty thousand copies of that book in six weeks or something insane. Wow. Maybe weeks. Um, I paid off my advance within like a month and and um, started earning royalties from it and. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been, and it's still selling. It's still selling now. I mean, my because when you're published by Amazon, you have a you have something that's very similar to KDP, which is like a daily sales. It doesn't refresh real time, but it it it, it updates daily, so you can see your sales. And I've, so I've got quite a backlist now, and I've got foreign editions and everything on there as well. And the Folly Home is still kind of still consistently outselling all the others, like every day. And there's there's something there's something about that book and the magpies, something about the the description, the blurb, the cover, whatever it is. There's there's some kind of magic ingredient to those books that makes makes them keep selling. It's interesting that you don't write in series. Your your your, your personal works tend to be standalone, whereas you know you go for something like Lee Child, for instance, who's completely built a career around a single uh, character. Why, why have you made that choice? Um, I'd, I'd, it wasn't really a conscious choice. I think that it was after the mag, after the magpies took off and that was a standalone. That seemed like the way to go to keep writing standalones. And I wanted to write a sequel to the magpies, but my, my publisher has never been keen on that. Even though readers were always telling me that they, they want, they want it because because they say that a sequel can never do as well as, as the first one. It's always diminishing returns. Um, unless you have like a series character, like a detective or, or a kind of, or a Jack Reacher type hero. Um, or, and, you, and you have to also put them out really fast. I mean, what Angela Marsons and Robert Brinzer as well, who's also with Bookature, do is they bring out two books a year, so they've got their um, their series coming out really, really fast. Every six months, there's a new instalment. Readers are readers are hooked, and I think to make a series work, you've got to you've got to kind of um, put them out really quickly, one after the other. And um, at the moment, I've for the last few years, I've been a one book a year man, um, and I think that I like writing self-contained standalones. But I also have a universe, so there are always crossovers between the books. So you'll have a recur there are recurring 
characters or companies or, or things that are referenced in each of the books, like little Easter eggs that that um, that people really like. The way that, the same way that Stephen King used to do it with like towns would pop up in lots of his books, or you'd have recurring recurring characters and and um, sort of little in jokes and things for readers of previous books. I, I love doing that, but but I um, I. I I mean, I have start, started a couple of series, um, but like you said, the solo books are all standalones. However, having said that, I am thinking about starting a series if I can kind of fit them in between between the standalone psychological thrillers because I, that that's kind of what I'm known for now is writing these these self-contained books. And it's what I and, and it's what I enjoy doing. I like to get to the end of a story, and that's the end of the story. The amount of emails I get from people saying, "Please write a sequel to the Magpies," "Please write a sequel to Folly Home," um, uh, or "What I, I want to know what happened next," because my books often end with a bit of a not a cliffhanger, but some unanswered questions. Um, but I like I like readers to imagine what happened next in that story or in that world, rather than rather than wrapping it all up neatly. But yeah, it's, un- it's unusual for, um, for, for crime writers to, um, to, to only do, or mainly do standalones, I think. You said you're a, a one book a year man, but I'm, I'm following the progress of, of The Lucky Ones, your next book, which is released on June the 15th. Now, yeah. no, number one, I, I noticed that it's on pre-order on Amazon at the moment. So mm. you've got to get this thing written and out on time because uh, you've got that pressure. But but also you're, you're writing at the moment, aren't you? The Lucky Ones is finished. Oh, it's finished, is it? It's the next yeah. one you're writing. Right, okay, I've got them out of sync. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so The Lucky Ones was finished um, around Christmas. I've just done the final, final little bits of edits on it. Um, and I am now, I'm halfway through another one, which I'm actually writing faster than I normally write. So some books, the Because She Loves Me only took me four months to write um, and was quite easy. And I look back on that, I look back on that book and think, how the hell did I write a book so quickly and then it was then it came so easily? <laughs> because the next two, Folly Home and The Devil's Work, were an absolute nightmare. I mean, especially The Devil's Work. Um, I I was late delivering the the first well, it's not the first draft, but I was late delivering it to my publisher anyway. I kind of rushed to get it finished. Um, it was a, I handed it into my publisher and it, and it was a mess. And I thought, well, my editor is just going to have to try and help me sort it out. And it, and he kind of came back to me with a million, a million. I mean, actually, no, what happened was he started to, um, to edit it. And I, and I stopped him and said, okay, I know, I know that there are lots of problems with this book. I kind of know what they are. I need more time to go to finish it. And I went back and I literally deleted 60,000 words and wrote them again, like in a month. I, I just, I just wrote like a demon for a month after spending almost a year kind of trying to make this book work. And, um, 
I don't want to be kind of melodramatic about it, but I was literally there kind of rolling on the floor in agony, <laughs> banging my head against the wall, crying, wanting to give all, give it all up and go and retrain as a plumber or something because it was it was just horrendous. I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it work. I'm fine, and sometimes that happens. Um, I, I really admire people like Angie Marsons who are, who are writing a book every six months and doing it consistently, consistent kind of quality and and uh, kind of keeping their their readers happy because I kind of screwed up my schedule with these two books that were really, really hard to write. But The Lucky Ones was easier and touch with this one that I'm writing now, which I don't have a title for yet. Um, I've written... Um, I'm almost on 60,000 words and that's only taken what, five weeks. So um, that's really fast for me. And so far it's going, I think it's going well. So yeah, I just think sometimes you hit a book where you hit a book that is much harder to, to get right than the others. And um, yeah, so I, I want to increase my, I want to increase my output. I would like to be writing two books a year. Um, I think that in the ebook world, readers want they want more they want um they they want them fast um or there's always a risk that they'll they'll forget about you and move on to somebody new (laughs) (laughs) we've been talking for over an hour now so i I really must wind this up because you've got a book to write haven't you i know i know know. my workout's gonna really suffer today (laughs) (laughs) i do apologize for that Um, so i'll ask you a final question we must let you plug the the next book the lucky ones could you you know do your 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 author pitch for it and just let us know oh my god i need to practice this because i haven't practiced it yet um it's a it's a psychological thriller which has which has police elements. It is set in Shropshire, be- beautiful Shropshire, near where I live, and a serial killer is terrorising this sleepy county. Um, and this serial killer has a unique motive in that he wants his victims to be happy before he kills them. He wants them to die at their happiest moment. So he manipulates his victims' lives. Um, and when everything seems to be going perfectly for them, he strikes. Ooh, good. So the challenge of writing that book was that in a psychological thriller, you normally have lots and lots of terrible things happening to people and you kind of mount the tension that way. And I had to do it in reverse. I had to build tension through good things happening to people <laughs> with the reader kind of knowing that actually they're just being um, built up to be before they're struck down. So um, I think it's – I'm really happy with that, actually. I think it's a really good, fast-paced um, crime novel with, with very strong psychological thriller elements and um and i'm now in that that kind of pre-publication state when nobody has read it apart from my publisher and my agent and um i'm waiting to get people's reactions to it well look it's been brilliant talking to you today i I thoroughly enjoy the books and um, i actually have all your your bumps in my scrivener file um, because I, I use it for inspiration, you know, the kind of, I love your phrase, scary things happen to ordinary people. I think that distills, you know, yeah. that, that book 
beautiful. Is that your phrase or is that somebody else's phrase? It's wonderful. I, I don't, well, I, I think it's my phrase, but I'm sure it's been used before, but <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to claim great originality, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's what Stephen King's been doing for 40 years or however, however long it's been. But, but yeah, that's, that's my, the other thing I do is that I always write books that are X from hell, neighbors from hell, girlfriend from hell, holiday from hell. Um, so yeah. That's uh, I, I, I try and stay really, really focused on um, on what the book is and how you can describe it. Unfortunately, I've just written a book called The Lucky Ones, which is not as easy to describe. So I really need to I really need to to practice that elevator pitch for it. So yeah, without giving away too much of the plot, which I probably might have just done. <laughs> well, we can edit. Look, I really appreciate your time um, on the podcast yeah. today, Mark. We wish you every success with with the lucky ones. I don't think you need Thank my you. my good luck by the sounds of it, but um, you know, keep keep them coming because they're great reads. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's self publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends, or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>